the awesome thing about courses is I stopped work on that course pretty much entirely. I haven't produced a YouTube video or a blog post or anything in over six years now, and it still cranks out revenue every single month. And it's all organic. We really don't do any ads. It's just organic search YouTube. So it's it's amazing. It's been on autopilot now for over six years and still generating uh, really nice revenues. When did you first launch it? How long ago? 13 years, I think. <laughs> Welcome to the Entrepreneur's Journey Podcast, where we delve into the stories of successful entrepreneurs so you can discover what's possible. Today's guest is Greg Smith. I just finished listening to an audiobook about the foundation of Home Depot, a company you probably know about. It's a very large, multi-billion dollar company in the United States that sells home renovations and repairs products. So I learned about how this company was founded and the message I kept hearing was customer service is their number one value and also the number one reason why they believe they are successful and became market leaders. This reminded me of the message I heard from another book I listened to many years ago about the foundation of Zappos, the online retailer of shoes that later got acquired by Amazon. The founder and, and that whole book talked about the importance of customer service. And I feel like this is a message that seems to be repeated over and over again in these entrepreneur founder bio books that customer service is the most important thing to create a market leading, super successful business, whether offline or online, whatever the case may be. And this made me think back to the very early days starting my business, I used to do customer service myself entirely through email. And at first, I really loved it. I was replying to potential customers and current customers, answering their questions, convincing them to buy from my business. And it was fun. But then eventually, I started to get a little overrun with a lot of queries. A lot of people you know, ask me about my products and services, whether it's right for them. And then a lot of technical issues would come in like, no, a link is not working on my website, or how do they access this resource? Or you know, where can they download that or they can't open a PDF. And these kind of emails kept coming in day after day. And eventually, the more successful I got, the more of these emails I got. And I got really tired of replying to the same questions over and over again. Now, I knew that I could start building, you know, template replies to answer the most common queries, which I did. But I very quickly became overrun with this job. I'd wake up in the morning and I'd have to spend three hours just replying to messages. And, you know, there were a lot of important messages in there, a lot of potential customers I could be losing if I don't reply to those emails with a good, thorough, carefully crafted email to give them the information they need. So I was concerned if I stop doing this, my business is not going to work, yet I'm getting less and less time in my life to do anything else other than email. So that's the day I realized I needed to bring on someone else to help me with this very important customer service role, handling the email in my business. And that's why I'm so excited today to introduce you to a new sponsor of this podcast, InboxDone.com, which is a service where you can bring on board a person to take over email in your business and your life. And I want to highlight how important that is to bring on a person who can take over customer service in your business, in particular, email customer service. So if anything I said there resonated with your current situation with how you deal with email, you know, you're getting a lot of those kind of queries and you're feeling like you're potentially missing out on business or you're not doing as good a job 
involved as you could dealing with really important queries from people who potentially want to buy from you or even current customers who have bought from you or the more mundane queries like I can't open this PDF or this link gave me a 404 I can't find this resource kind of emails they're boring but it's important you've got someone who's answering those questions and not only answering them but building systems creating templates and automatic sequences of emails that chase up potential customers or deal with potential refunds processes to really deliver exceptional customer service and all of this can be happening without you being the person delivering those emails or writing those emails or creating those templates certainly not the person who logs in every day and puts in all this time to deal with something that is never going to end you're always going to get email as long as you have a successful business and in fact you're only going to get more and more as you become more and more successful so i recommend if this is your situation you check out the inboxdone.com service and hire someone who can essentially become your entire customer support team just by hiring this one person from inbox done to take over email in your business now it can do a lot more than that for you but i recommend to find out all the details just go to inboxdone.com check out the website and you'll find an application form there where you can apply for your very own email inbox manager who could take over customer service in your business which would potentially can change your life you can take this completely off your plate and go to sleep relaxed stress-free knowing that customer service is being handled by a dedicated person whose job is to deal with those emails every day for you that's inboxdone.com go check them out Hello, this is Yaro and welcome to another podcast episode. Today I have a guest who has built a company in an industry that I really enjoy. As most of you know, I've been in the sort of information marketing, teaching business. And in fact, I've made the majority of my online income from some form of online course for about the last 10 years or so. And my guest is uh, the founder of a company you might know really well because it helps us to set up and sell online courses. So I'd like to introduce you today to Greg Smith, the founder of Thinkific. Hello, Greg. Hey, Aro. Great to be here. Thank you. So you have the easiest name to pronounce, I think, of any guest I've ever had on the show. So I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's got its pros and cons. You know, if you Google Greg Smith, it, you usually have to add some sort of modifier like Thinkific or lawyer or something before you'll any, find anything about me. Right. So I guess it's good for anonymity, but uh, not so good for building any kind of uh, internet brand. You have the opposite of, of my name. I have, I've owned Yarrow since the beginning on Google because besides my father, there's not a lot of Yarrows out there. So Right, yes. <laughs> which, is, which is actually quite helpful. But yes, my condolences for all the Greg Smiths out there. You guys are just everywhere. So. Now, for those who don't know, uh, Thinkific uh, is a Vancouver-based company, and I know you guys have been growing like crazy. I've been to your offices here. Do you want to just give us a quick summary of you know what you do and, and how big the company is at the moment? Sure. So we we started uh, well, actually now about six years ago, and we are a platform that makes it super easy for people to create, launch, deliver, sell, and market their own online courses or membership sites or online learning programs with full branding and control put into your hands. So really what we're going for is if you went out and hired your own developer or team of developers today to build out your own custom solution for delivering your own online content and education, that we'd be able to give you a much better result than if you went out and did it all yourself and obviously at a, a much reduced cost. 
And uh, so we've been around about six years, serve tens of thousands of course creators and uh, millions of students. And uh, our team now in Vancouver uh, is about 70 people and hiring. So for people who are looking for especially digital marketing and product management jobs, we're always looking for awesome people and have a pretty amazing culture and having a lot of fun doing it. I was joking with Greg before we hit the record button how they, they have these uh, Think If Fake hoodies. I actually have one as well. <laughs> and I swear, I, every time I hang out with someone who works at Think If Fake or even used to work at Think If Fake, they have the hoodie on. So it's a great uh, promotional tool. I wear it. I've had, I think it's one of the best hoodies I've got. So you, whoever came up with that did a great job. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're, they're fun. <laughs> and they're comfortable. Yeah. And you also have a previous guest of mine, Lewis Howes, is one of your, uh, I think, customers, right? He's, he's used you guys for a number of years. Or... Yeah, Lewis uses us and Todd Herman now and a uh, bunch of other course creators who are, uh, are doing great things with the platform. Okay, so when I was uh, sort of introduced to Greg, well, that's not true. I met, I met Greg first in San Diego because they host some amazing dinners there when uh, some conferences are on. But when I first spoke to uh, one of Thinkific's employees, Tyler, you might know him. Hello, Tyler. He mentioned that Greg has a really unique entrepreneurial background that goes back quite far. So, Greg, I'd love to go back in time and sort of explore what led up to Thinkific. And you mentioned that you, you may have had, I don't know if it's a lemonade stand or <laughs> the baseball cards you were selling. What was the, the childhood entrepreneurial project? Oh, the childhood one. Yeah. Mm. Well, I, I do have a, an obsession now where uh, and my wife bugs me about it sometimes is I can't drive past a kid's lemonade stand without going and contributing or buying from the stand to support the business and even if that means sometimes driving to a bank machine and then driving back <laughs> so it's uh, it's actually I try and carry a little bit of cash because you know, I'm so driven on plastic now everything's on credit card these days but uh, if I can, I try and carry cash everywhere just in case I come across a lemonade stand. So especially coming into summer. But I didn't actually do a lemonade stands when I was a kid. I had um, We had this crazy experiment when I was about 12 where we, I think we built this thing called Snowbird Mountain. And it was a big hill in my friend's sort of backyard and hidden in the trees. And we built all of these courses for essentially marbles to go down and go over ramps and through tunnels and around corners. And there was sort of like a racetrack for marble racing. And then we'd invite all the neighborhood kids over that were a little younger than us to come and like race marbles. And I think there might've even been some betting, but but gambling yes. was not our business model. We, we sold candy. So we'd go to Costco and pick up massive bulk things of candy and then sell, you know, five and 10 cent candies and recover our costs and make a profit that way. And it was actually, you know, for a 12 year old, a pretty lucrative little business. And it was a lot of fun. Genius. I love marbles. That's a, <laughs> so you made your own theme park, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was that in Vancouver? It was. Yes. Nice. Okay. So that kickstarted your, uh, your, your fund for the next company. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think we probably spent most of that money on, on our own candy or other things, but <laughs> <laughs> you ate yeah. your profits, huh? <laughs> yeah. Not surprising. So <laughs> what, what was next in the, in the entrepreneurial resume? Well, lots of little steps along the way. I had a company that did, when I was going through university, we did ecotourism, we called it, for ESL school. So Vancouver at the time, and it's still huge here, but I think downtown alone, there was 60 or 70 language schools for people coming to Vancouver to learn English and, and work or participate in sort of co-op programs or even just stay in homestays. So we would work with some of those schools doing their kind of adventure and outdoor programs. So it was a ton of fun. I would go 
whitewater rafting and snowboarding and going all of these trips with people from all over the world and get paid to do it. So that was a fun next step in the entrepreneurial journey. Nice. Did you come across that just by chance or like, is that something a lot of people do in Vancouver? One of my good friends and roommate at the time was from Korea. And so I think he'd come through one of those schools and, and saw it as an opportunity. And so that kind of kickstarted that thing. And then we did we did a bunch of other, just him and I and a few other people through university did a bunch of things to pay for, pay our tuitions, uh, had a custom clothing company, a few other little businesses going through. And then even coming out of school, the first business I went into, this was a job. So I actually, straight out of business school, I did get a job as a salesperson for a software company, but it was a six-person company and I was pretty much the only person doing sales there. So I had, it was kind of like, we just built this product, go find us customers. So it was a lot of leeway working for a small startup, which gave me kind of the early experience of doing small startup software scales, which was a lot of fun. So when you were in university, did you have the plan of, being an entrepreneur as your kind of life plan for income or or you thinking career, job, and even what were your parents in terms of their advice or, or as role models, what were they guiding you towards? Well, my dad's a doctor, my mom's a nurse, and they're very education driven. So I think for them, it was, they're very supportive of me now and always have been, but I think education and career, uh, you know, your, your more typical go to school, get a job kind of thing was much more their focus and what they were excited about. And so, you know, going back to when I was in school, I went through business school and then came out, worked for a while. And then I went back to law school. So I really, I always had these entrepreneurial pursuits, but I don't think I ever really looked at it as something I was going to commit to until I started practicing law. But that being said, I mean, even my dad being a doctor, I think he was sort of similar in that respect that he had the career and the education, but in the garage, there was always some crazy entrepreneurial pursuit from like a, a worm farm or a crazy flying machine or a, a kid's toilet that trains them. All sorts of crazy ideas there that I think really inspired me on the entrepreneurial journey. Sounds to me like your father's projects were more side inventor type projects. He wasn't about to quit being a doctor and, and go sell how to train your kids to use the toilet sort of thing, right? But you just said before, as a lawyer was the first time you started thinking about entrepreneurship. Did I hear that incorrectly? Like you, you didn't like law, so you thought about entrepreneurship or what was the connection? Yeah. So I got into practicing law and I think the reason I went in, I, I did corporate and securities law. So I had a lot of like big corporate clients. And in the three years I practiced law, I got to see more corporate transactions than you do as a CEO, probably in a lifetime. I went in for the ability to go and see all of these really exciting moments in corporate lives. And I actually loved the practice of law. I loved the people I work with, the lawyers, the firms I work with, the clients. It was amazing. And I got such amazing exposure because they would parachute me into a business when it was going through a crisis or raising you know, $200 million or buying another company. So I got to see all of these really exciting times and advise the CEO or the board of directors through that whole process. And I would do a new one of these every month or so. So it was a it was an amazing learning curve. And I was loving that. But then Actually, I think there was a, a moment there where I read the book The Alchemist. And it, it, uh -huh. it, for those of you who read it, it kind of walks you through this concept of, of sort of finding your place in life and what you really should be doing and what you're going to be super happy at. And I remember reading it and setting a deadline of, you know, I'm going to give myself another year, year and a half, I think. I, I put an actual date in my notebook and said, I'm going to give myself a deadline and then I'm going to jump and go do something entrepreneurial and start something. And maybe I'll come back to law. 
but I really wanted to give it a shot and you know cut away the golden handcuffs and, and mm. go for it, give up the salary, cut away the paycheck and go for the entrepreneurial pursuit and see what could happen there. So when you started having those kind of thoughts and you're talking about doing things like cutting the salary, how did you plan for that transition? And also at that point, were you just like a single guy? Because obviously a lot of people, you know, they, they start to have wives and children and, or, or husbands, whatever it may be. That creates, I guess, more pressure to not quit a job and, and the risk seems higher to start a business. So how are you planning for that transition to become an entrepreneur? Yeah, I didn't I didn't do a great job of planning. I probably could have saved a bit more. The one thing I did when I did quit is I just went and lived with my parents for a few months, maybe even six months. <laughs> so probably could have done a better job of planning, but I really just kind of took the leap of faith and, and jumped. And I was single at that time. I'm married now with two kids. But even when I met my wife uh, years later, we, we it was sort of a constant learning curve of how broke I actually was. Because when we first met, it was sort of, you know, she'd ask me to go up to Whistler and go skiing and, you know, stay in a lodge. And I was like, I can't come. And for a while, it was kind of a point of contention where we actually broke up over it for a little while where she thought that I wasn't interested because I wasn't willing to go and spend money on these activities. And I had to explain, no, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm still broke at this point. Now, it's different and better now. But even when we went for our first mortgage, she got to look at all of my prior tax returns and she's like, wow, you really had a period there where you made nothing, eh? Wow. <laughs> how, how did you keep her attention then? Because that could be a, a high criteria and some, and some women want the guy to have some, some money, you know? Yeah, well, I guess I'm, you just have to be good in other ways. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm a pretty nice guy and care a lot about her. So I think she was able to see, see past my impecuniosity and, uh, and to the future. And the other thing is too, is I think there's a difference between being broke with no goals, plans, ambitions or not, you know, mm. not working. It's different. It wasn't like I was playing video games all day. I was working 16 hour days. I was just spending everything I made on employees and growing the business. So what was the project you left the law career for? What was the first one? So first one actually was a couple of buddies of mine from law school were starting a company and uh, putting touchscreens inside taxi cabs. And so we would pay the mm -hmm. cab companies and we did this in, you know, all across Canada and we'd pay the cab companies put these touchscreens in them and then we'd sell advertising on them. But also while I was in law school and even prior to that, I was building my own online course. And so even years prior to this, even way before I went into law, well, first year of law school, I built an online course. And that was really what really drove my ability to kind of take that leap of faith and uh, jump into entrepreneurial pursuits is because I was starting to generate some revenue from that course. Now, didn't translate to a lot of disposable income for me because I was funneling it back into the next business pursuit, which in the end was Thinkific. But that did help definitely in, in doing that was that early online course that I created. Okay, a couple of questions. So yeah, what year was the online course that that first one you made? Uh, I think it was 05. 2005 that I launched that first one. Wow, okay, that was really early days because I didn't launch a course until 07. And, you know, there, there were not Thinkifics at that time back in 2005. I no, I know. It might have even been 2003 because I was definitely teaching the LSAT in 2003 and that's when I started law school. So it might have been as early as then. But yeah, I remember we... My brother and I looked everywhere for a solution, and uh, in the end, I was lucky. My, son, my brother's a software developer, Matt, and he uh, he just built the solution for us. So we gave ourselves a 30-day deadline, and we said, 30 days, we're going to build the software. <laughs> 
it was pretty crappy software. <laughs> We're going to build the software and build the course and get it out there and see if anyone even cares about this thing. And it did. A few people cared. Ten people bought the course in the first week of launch or first month launch, I think. And then it continued to grow from there. What was the course on? The LSAT, Law School Admissions Test. So it was helping people write the test to get them into law school. And it's a super, super competitive space. At the time, not so much in the online course world because online courses were still somewhat earlier days then but extremely competitive space in test prep, but tons of opportunity there because people really do need to get that education. Yeah, I remember I used to, I had an, uh, an essay editing company back around that time, 2003, 2004. I remember putting up posters in Toronto and there were so many posters from other people <laughs> for LSAT and LCAT. I think that was the other one. It might have been a medical one as well. MCAT. MCAT, yeah. Yep. We don't have that. I grew up in Australia and, and there there isn't, I think, the equivalent of that. So I never was quite clear on what that was for a while. But man, there were a lot of posters about those two things. So it, clearly it's a, it's a big need. Definitely. And, and a great market. Yeah, I think my first hire ever, and this was like a total part-time thing that didn't even last that long, was I hired a guy at UBC who rode around on a skateboard putting up posters for me because I just got fed up with putting up posters everywhere. I, I also tried to outsource the putting up of posters, but it was hard to find people reliable. They never quite did it the same dedication as I did, I think, as a founder. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or I would get messages from the university saying that they'd been too dedicated, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> posting it all over in places where it shouldn't be. Yeah, I've had that problem a couple of times too. You triggered a few things that I, I want to talk about. First, let's close the door on this course. Though. You said you got 10 customers. How did you get 10 customers? So it all started, I was teaching a class in person and that was going so-so, but it was pretty difficult to get people into the class because there's a limited number of people who take the LSAT every year. And so you know, then you're also limited by who happens to be in your city, who happens to be local enough to go to wherever you're offering the class and who happens to care about it on this particular weekend. So I started, and then everyone I was talking to wanted private tutoring, they wanted to have a conversation, they wanted to have all this extra help, and I was finding a lot of my conversations were the same, so I created a little blog of just free resources, and I would drive people there, and I'd say, hey, you know, you want some private tutoring, start on the blog, read a couple articles, You'll that'll save you the first three hours of tutoring I was going to give you anyway, and, uh, and then we can sit down, so they'd do that. And then more and more people, even outside of Vancouver and all over the world, started reading the blog, and it wasn't, wasn't anything... Amazing. I was still excited when I went to Google Analytics and saw that 10 people went on the blog that day. But that was enough to launch the course. And I put the course out there and uh, people, so really it was just the traffic from organic search of people coming to the blog and then seeing that I had a course that they could take for, I think at the, the first launch was $29. So those first 10 people, I you know, netted less than 300 bucks out of it. But mm. still, it was a sign that there was something here. Well, you were really a pioneer. That's early days to, to go through that process. I can imagine just the fact that you had a website or, or blog with that content would have guaranteed Google search traffic. It would have been the early days for Google, too, if I, if I think back to then. They would have just got started, I think. Yeah, I don't. When did they? I don't know. I don't remember when they were getting started. I think it was definitely earlier than that. But it was certainly a lot easier then to get to yeah. get ranked for sure. And <laughs> yeah. then I immediately went, you know, branched out to YouTube and started putting content on YouTube, and that did exceptionally well. And then I, you know, I hit a point where YouTube and the blog were driving ten thousand a month in sales just organically, which was great. Oh wow. Okay. Well, I'd love to break down a little bit more of that because I can see how it leads to Thinkific, obviously too. But before I do that, there's one thing I wanted to ask you about, which I think we might have possibly zoomed past. But I think I read about it about you somewhere. But were you part of the, it's like you run your own painting business here in Canada? Have you done that? 
I did work for alumni painters and that was, so that was, it wasn't really quite like one of the student ones where you run it yourself. It wasn't as entrepreneurial. I just got a job as a painter and then leveled up to like leading a crew, but it was still, still very much a job where I, you know, I had the boss who kind of owned and ran the whole thing. He did the estimates and got the customers and I showed up and just painted. Right. I, I keep meeting people here in Canada. Two of my friends from Toronto, Jay Wong and Kirsten Ross, both did that. I think Tyler also might have had something to do with that, from, you know, who works at Thinkific now. It seems to be like a training ground for Canadian entrepreneurs. Everyone sort of starts there. So I thought maybe you were part of that, that crew as well. So I feel like maybe before your lawyer career or maybe even at the same time, you, you had a lot of little short-term maybe jobs like the painting project, but also entrepreneurial projects. I'm guessing there must have always been like a conflict with you working what would very much be considered a career with law. That's, you know, you, you don't study that much to then give it up, usually. Yeah. Like some people do, but but then at the same time, you seem to always be doing something, whether it was, you know, from the marbles, right, in the early days, and then, <laughs> you know, every like running your own course. I can see, I guess, this, the course has an overlap with what you did as a lawyer, but most lawyers don't go out there and decide to, you know, hire a programmer to create a course, especially in the early 2000s. So at the time you're doing that, what was your motivation? I'm assuming you earned enough money as a lawyer. So what was this drive? Because you just said you made like $300 on the first 10 customers. So it's not exactly, that's like one hour of lawyer time, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the course I launched, I actually launched around first, second year law school, I think. And so at the time, you know, I'm paying law school tuition and during the school year, didn't have a job. I I would work summers to help pay tuition. But so at the time I didn't have a lot. So launching the course was great. But also really, I mean, I guess the, the money was nice and it was great when it was really successful, but it was also really the impetus behind it for me in the early course days was very much that I was able to help other people and, and people got to know that I could help people get a higher LSAT score. And so they would reach out. And I was actually running out of time because I was spending so much time studying for law that I wanted to create more of an automated, on-demand, scalable way to reach people. And people not just, because I was starting to get people even reaching out from other cities. And this gave me a tool where I could say, look, I can scale and I can help lots of people and reach lots of people and even generate some revenue, which makes it that much more scalable by putting together an online course. And then when I actually got into the big law firms and started practicing there, I pretty much stopped all entrepreneurial work. I really had no time to do this, the side projects very much. I did a, like, I think my brother and I, for a little while, we tried calling it Mondays at nine and, and Monday at 9 PM. We'd like work on this on the course a little bit because that was sort of hopefully I was home by nine if I wasn't on a busy project. <laughs> mm, wow. So so yeah, I didn't spend a lot of time working on the entrepreneurial pursuits when I was actually practicing law. And I think that was part of the reason of the jump and leaving law is that I, I kind of missed it and wanted to get that opportunity. But the original course came when I was in law school when I was still quite broke and paying law school mm. tuition. What happened to that course then? Did it sort of fizzle out after you became a lawyer? No. <laughs> so the awesome thing about courses, especially you create them on demand on something like Thinkific, is I stopped work on that course pretty much entirely. I haven't produced a YouTube video or a blog post or anything in over, I think, six years now. And uh, it still cranks out revenue every single month. And it's all organic. We really don't do any ads. It's just organic search, YouTube drives that there might be a tiny bit of retargeting but i think it's i think we've even turned all that off so it's, wow. it's amazing it's been on autopilot now for over six years and still generating really nice revenues and when did you first launch it how long ago 
13 years, I think. Wow, that's a good run. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about an evergreen topic. Incredible. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> it doesn't, like, you don't need to update it? Like, does the LSAT doesn't change? Laws don't change? I guess not, right? <laughs> it did. The LSAT did update over six. The last time it updated, I think, was more than six years ago, but it was a minor update. I did a quick fix to it, but that was more than six years ago, and I haven't seen updates since then. So the nice, yeah, I'm, I'm always a little terrified that if they completely revamp the LSAT, I just, because right now I'm so focused, I have a, 70, a team of 70 here at Thinkific, and my focus now is on helping our clients create their own courses. So if they revamp the LSAT, then I guess that business model goes mm-hmm. bye-bye. You should probably <laughs> sell that business, but let's let's not go down that tunnel right now. No, I've had a few <laughs> offers for it, but I'm I'm really, it's Attached like, it's it, like a you? sentimental <laughs> attachment to it. And I know the potential for it. You know, I think it's doing about one-tenth. I think if I, if I could find someone who understood marketing reasonably well and, and put them on that project, it could probably 10x the revenues in a pretty short period of time. Okay, so any any people who are in the law field, education field, who want to partner with Greg, get in touch. <laughs> we put the call out there. Especially um, if you understand marketing online. <laughs> right. Fantastic. Because, yeah, that's it does sound like a, about 13 years of evergreen uh, sales. That's incredible. Not, maybe not 13 years of evergreen sales, but 13 years of sales and six years of evergreen sales. That's like, that's the dream, right? I didn't realize that you personally were such an example of selling an online course. So it's great to see. I'm guessing that was kind of like the doorway to starting Thinkific. But before we jump into that, you said your first business after quitting being a lawyer was actually putting in TVs and taxis. Is that what you said before? Yeah, yeah. So we replace the headrest with essentially like an iPad inside a headrest and then sell ads on it. There'd be entertaining content and then we'd sell ads to big ad buyers. Did you get rich and have a big exit? No, no, <laughs> that one didn't go so well for me. <laughs> I had a lot of fun doing it, but I think a couple of things is uh, one of the bigger ones just being that my passion's always been really in like helping people and education and helping teach people. And even, you know, with Thinkific, the big thing I get to do is help people build businesses and build education and help them help their students and get their message and their passion out. I was really missing that. I had that in law because I could help my clients build their business and get their message out. And you know, and now I have it at Thinkific where anyone who wants, who has an ex- area of expertise or a passion they want to share, I can help them do that through Thinkific. But in selling ads, there was something missing for me there that didn't resonate with what I wanted to be doing. So how long did you go before you left that project? I think that was only about a year, year and a half. Okay. And what happened next? Then it was straight into Thinkific. We spent like a month revamping the LSAT course, which is Alpha Score is the LSAT course. Yeah, I then dove what, into Thinkific. What is the website address before you continue for the, the LSAT business so we can check this out? I, I, it's, uh, it's alphascore.com, A-L-P-H-A. So like the spelling of the Greek letter alpha score, like hockeyscore.com. And it, again, hasn't been, you might see a blog post on there, like one or two within the last six years that someone just sent me and then I just reposted it on the site, but it really hasn't, we haven't done anything to it in quite a while other than make sure it's all set up on Thinkific. I was going to say, right, the, the course actually runs on Thinkific now. You're still not using that, that first version of the platform. No, yeah, that first version <laughs> was pretty painful. Uh, okay. So <laughs> yeah, with the germination of the Thinkific idea, what were you, like, how did that, come about? What were you thinking? What was the need that you see in the market? And why did you think you were the person to potentially solve it? Well, so we had the LSAT course out. And what I found was people kept reaching out to me saying, hey, I want to do the same thing. And 
they weren't quite asking for what we did with Thinkific. Like Thinkific is that self-serve platform, you know, put your content in, pick from a couple of themes to make everything look beautiful, launch your course, all the e-commerce, everything's built in. What people were calling me for way back then was, you know, can you, things like, can you shoot my videos? Can you uh, help me launch my course? Can you launch it for me and sell it for me? And then just I'll take up a, a royalty or how did you do what you did? But it was all really around the, the core message I was getting these inbound calls from was, I saw what you did with your LSAT course and Alpha score. How can I do the same with my GMAT course or my SAT course or my kiteboarding course or my you know filmmaking course? You know, I'm teaching offline right now, but I want to take it online and I can't find a good solution. You know, can you just take my content and turn it into a course and sell it for me? And so that was really, it was constantly hearing that message from people. And we tried to work a bunch of deals where we'd get much more involved and we'd, you know, film it and sell it and and do all of the work for people. And I found that the best way we could serve them was actually just to build a self-serve tool because what we really wanted to do was give people the same business ownership and success and control that we had with our own course, which is saying, you know, you get your own site, your own brand, your own course, all the revenue is yours. You just go set it up and, and you're ready to go. At what point in this journey did your now wife enter the picture? I just want to make sure, because I, I, you said you met and you were very much a hustling entrepreneur. Was it the start of Thinkific or was it earlier? No, it was it was early days Thinkific. So it was early days Thinkific. I was still at the point where I wasn't. We had employees, but I wasn't yet paying myself a salary. Okay, all right. So yeah. well, she'll enter the picture shortly. So okay, so it sounds like like a lot of people when you get this demand coming at you, often the first way to think about servicing it is actually to offer a service, right? Like we'll do the videos, we'll build your website, and then you know do a revenue share, kind of like the agency model, I guess, right? So it sounds like you tried that and realized that it wasn't your future direction. The thing is, you decide then, I'm assuming, to build a, another platform, right? And, and I'm guessing you were planning to replace what you were running your own course on with that new platform. What did you learn from, you know, hiring that programmer back in the, the very early days with that first course? You know, 30, you said you had 30 days, build the platform. Now, when you're about to create Thinkific 1.0, how did you go about doing that? Do you hire someone full time? Did you get venture funding? How did Thinkific start? Well, so the first programmer was actually my brother. So the, the first guy I worked with was my brother, Matt. And then so we did the same thing again years later when we wanted to take the idea of Thinkific and make it available to everyone is he did the code and I did the sort of sales and marketing. And uh, well, he actually did a lot of the marketing too. <laughs> but we just worked together. We didn't, I think we, we got a little bit of money from my dad, borrowed a bit from my grandma, but just enough to kind of keep things going in that first year. And then we really turned to customers for revenue. And that's where in that first year, we didn't have this sort of full-on self-serve platform where thousands of people can come and set up their own courses. So we did have to do a lot of the manual work for people, but that was great because it also forced us to charge a lot more, especially in those early days. So we'd go to people and you know, now you can use Thinkific and get set up and started and launch a course for free. Back then, we'd often ask someone for ten dollars or $15,000 right out of the gate just to set something up for them. There was some client revenue pretty early on, but it was very sporadic and non-scalable. And I think that's what we realized is I was pretty good at doing the sales thing, but I could sell someone on ten or fifteen or twenty-five thousand dollars to do a project for them. But then 
we had to start all over again the next month or the next quarter. And so we really wanted to move into more of a, a scalable recurring revenue model where people just pay a subscription fee to use the service and then it's self-serve. And that allowed us to serve way more people with a much more scalable model for us. Mm. Where did the Thinkific name come from? That one, <laughs> we've looked at changing it a few times, but I do like it. Originally, my brother came up with Think mashed with Terrific. And I think that was what it was. And then <laughs> the dot awesome. com was available. Now we're sort of looking at Think If I Could is a really nice sort of branding message associated with Thinkific of Think If I Could Launch My Own Course or Think If I Could Teach the World or Think If I Could you know, share my passion with others. And uh, I think that lines up a little bit better with yeah. Thinkific and <laughs> helps people remember how to spell it too. Right. That's a better kind of brand message, but I do like thinking and terrific. It's hilarious. Okay. I can imagine you guys sitting at a table brainstorming ideas and then, <laughs> all right, let's go with this one. Okay. So you've, you and your brother, you're kind of doing custom bespoke high priced products and then you're going or services really then you're thinking okay we need to get this more uh less hands-on work more recurring revenue we need a platform at this point is it still just you and your brother or is your team expanded like how did it grow yeah we hired we did hire a designer pretty early because i think we recognized that uh my brother's decent at design but we needed that that was the first piece of help that we needed and and the, the interesting thing was the whole time we were doing these bespoke or custom solutions we were building the platform so we knew right out of the gate what we wanted to to do. We kind of had a few deviations and false false positives along the way where we got pulled in other directions. But right out of the gate, we were building the platform. So it was interesting, even the code we were writing from day one was you know, in use years later when we really hit on the right business model and everything clicked and started working together. But those first three years were pretty rough and a lot of a lot of false positives and false starts and can you, you know, maybe getting maybe explain what you mean by like a false positive? What's an example? Yeah, so false positive for me is if you're maybe you're good at sales or you have a relationship or you really push hard on something and then you get a little bit of success or a little bit of revenue, but there's not a lot to kind of follow on from that. So one thing we had is we had some early success working with professional designation organizations. So these are like not-for-profits that work with, say, lawyers or HR managers or accountants. And so we had a few of those early on who were really willing to work with us and had budget. And so we thought, okay, well, this could be a great you know, niche within the market. If you think crossing the chasm and like going really after this specific vertical, this will be a great place to start. And so that was kind of a false positive because what we learned once we started investing a lot of effort in that industry was that in the not-for-profits in this professional, the professional associations is they were really excited about the project and they'd shake hands and say, yeah, we're going to do this, but it would be... 12 to 24 months and four board meetings or eight board meetings later before anything would happen. Mm. So it was just way too slow of a sales cycle and not a big enough return on it to make it worthwhile. So that was one of the kind of false positives we had that it seemed like a good thing. And then as we went down that path, realized we should probably get back to our, our real vision here of making that self-serve platform for anyone to go launch their course. So with these false positives, it sounds like I don't know how you're doing it, but were clients just kind of showing up like, you know, someone sees a course that you've built for someone and, and then they direct you like a referral? Like, was that where all the marketing was happening? Or were you, because you said you were the sales and marketing guy, were you literally sitting on the phone all day trying to drum up with clients during those early days? A bit of both. So it, it, like, I think in that particular space, there was a referral that came in and that worked well. And then I got on the phone for two months and just called everyone in the book that I could find. And that's where we learned that maybe it was a false positive because we got a lot of really positive initial feedback, but not a lot of things closing in any reasonable period of time. 
Right, because how did you think about your target market? I can imagine, you know, there's so many potential avenues for selling digital information today, and certainly more so maybe when you started because people just didn't have the general awareness that this is something you can do, certainly not easily, right? So you'd have had everything from the hobbyists to corporate, you know, B2B type platform options, right? So how did you decide, even making a phone call, like today I'm going to phone nothing but real estate companies and see if they want to do a course? Like, how did you decide that? Well, early days, uh, we were really kind of going for this, like, you know, our, our I think our ideal avatar early days was sort of the somewhat celebrity expert. So ideally they had content. Now, it might not be online content, but they were teaching people. It could be a textbook. It could be a live class that they did. And then they had some sort of celebrity and that they were known, at least in their industry, as, as a key expert in that. And the idea there, though, was that we were going to partner with them and do a lot of the work for them. And what we saw over chasing that avatar is that, yes, we could do it at a very non-scalable level, but we actually could generate much better results for ourselves and for our clients if we built more of the self-serve platform and just gave them all the tools to do a lot of it themselves with the training to go out and do it. And so what we find now is that if someone has the expertise, they can go out and generate the audience. Now, if they have an audience, all the better, but there's enough understanding of an opportunity and, and ability now out there that if you have some expertise or some passion, you can actually get out there, start generating your own audience, and the end result will be that much better for you because then you kind of own the entire platform, yeah. your own brand. So like I see someone like, we have one client out of Australia, actually, Deanne Love, who does hula hoop training. And I think she actually started shooting video with an iPhone in a park of her hula hooping and put it online and built an online course showing people how to do really cool hoop tricks and for you know fitness and dance and fun. And, uh, and now she's got a whole team. She travels the world. Her <laughs> whole site and brand and product looks amazing. And she's really just through creating content, been able to get out there and build this massive audience and really successful business around her hula hooping hobby. For the love of hula hoops, that's that's awesome. You need someone doing yo-yos and what's another old school hobby. Tell me a bit more about at the point we said, okay, let's build a do-it-yourself hosting an online course platform. At that point where you really realized that's the direction you want to take the company and maybe not a false positive, a positive positive. Did you just tell your brother, go build it? Or how did that begin? <laughs> no, it's probably more like he told me. I think we had that idea right out of the gate. That was what we discussed six years ago, day one, kind of opening things up and said, we really want to have this sort of multi-tenanted, as in like lots of different people can create their own site, but it's white-labeled, they can make it look how they want, they can build their course how they want, give them total control, and that's actually what we wanted out of the gate. And my brother looked at me and said, yeah, I can't build that on my own in you know any reasonable period of time to sort of generate revenue. So that's where we started building it, but then used what we were building to do some of these more custom solutions. So we'd have the basis of a platform that we were building. And while we were creating that, we'd go and do these custom solutions. And then it wasn't until two or three, we kind of got distracted and we could have done it a lot faster, but we got distracted with some of these false positives. And then two or three years later, we came full circle back. And it was actually my brother who came to me one day and said, I think actually what he said is, I think we should be Shopify for online courses. And Shopify was really exploding at this point. And he said, you know, I think we should basically be Shopify for online courses. And, and that's when we kind of went full board into, into that path. Mm, another Canadian company too, right? Yeah, interesting the way you sort of explain almost like a, a formula for bootstrapping a software company because yeah, you have this vision. And I, I've actually been there. I had a software startup in 2012. 
And just like your brother said, we just couldn't build what we needed to, to make money in any short period of time. And you kind of found a really great sort of stopgap solution where we build it, but we do more of the work hands-on so we can get a higher value client. The danger, like you said, was seeing that as potentially your business model where ultimately you need to kind of pull it back and go, no, no, this is a cash flow source to get to the point where we can actually release the full-blown platform that we want. So how long did it take for that first version of Thinkific to be created? And was it just your brother still building it over a long period of time or did he eventually have help? No, we def- yeah, we'd hired other developers. And actually, I, I think one of the first guys we hired was another Matt, so my brother's Matt, and then we had another Matt, Matt Payne, and he's now our CTO. So we did a pretty good job of some of those early hires. And one of the earlier ones as well, our director of marketing is now our COO, Miranda Levers. And, and so they're co-founders now as well. And they came really early days and were just, I'd love to say that I knew what I was doing hiring then, but I think we just got super lucky with some of the early people who joined our team, which made it amazing. So how long did that platform take to build? Well, I mean, we've been building it for six years and it's all the same code base. I mean, they've cut away a bunch of chunks of it. So obviously each year grows exponentially on on top of the prior year because I think our product team is 25. Well, we're 70 people on the whole team, but our product team is over 25 people now. So, Well, when was the first release? I mean, like at what point did you actually go to the public and say, we have a a do-it-yourself platform? Oh, oh, yeah. Well, that was even that wasn't a defining moment. I mean, we had, so we, we went through a whole period where we had... A platform, but only re- we could really build and manage within it. So we didn't have the user experience that was open enough to like have everyone just sign up and build their own stuff. So early, what we were doing when we hit platform stage, where we're like, you can have your own site and brand it and create the course. We were still doing the work inside of it. So we would actually email people, call people up, hop on a Skype chat with them, get them to Dropbox us their content. Then we would upload it to our system, build out a site for them, send it back to them, and then we'd hop on another Skype call to walk through it with them and ask them for their credit card to start charging <laughs> charging oh, them. Wow. <laughs> so that went on for geez, almost six months like that. And then we launched the ability for people to sign up on their own, bulk upload all of their content on their own, build out their course, and pay us, of course. And that was a really nice day when we we kind of put that out there. So even that took a while. It was a very sort of staged approach. And and obviously, looking back, we probably could have shaved years off this whole process if we knew exactly where we were going and what it would take to get there. But uh, we didn't. We learned a lot on the way. <laughs> Which leads to a question, what would you do differently only in that early stage now with hindsight if you were advising someone else who wants to follow in your footsteps? I think figuring out really early on a few key things, and people talk about product market fit, and that's... To me, you know, the definition of that is when your customers are pulling you in a direction and it, it becomes easier to make decisions about what you're creating. You're not struggling by calling people up and saying, please tell me you know, what you want. I mean, you, you should be having those conversations, but it really hits you when it's like this unstoppable force that's pulling you in a direction and you basically just get to start doing what people are looking for. Now, you still need to think about the future and have your own vision, but, but having that piece is huge. But then I think People talk about that being this early thing that you need to get right. And I think, you know, in advising someone early on, we could have gotten that right way sooner if we'd been better at talking to and listening to customers. But then I think the other piece is you need to fit that in with the channel that you're going to use to reach them. So the marketing piece. And I think another big thing we could have done early on is that 
we didn't really know how we were going to acquire customers in the end or what we were going to create exactly for them. So I didn't worry too much about building a, an audience and a marketing channel. And I think people do this a lot better now. But I would have started right out of the gate writing about and making videos about and generating content generally in our because in our industry. Because we knew we were going to do something in education and creating courses. So if I'd been building that base way back then, we would have had a way bigger sort of following and audience uh, when we actually figured out what our product market fit was. Yeah, so that those two things would have been things we could have done a lot faster mm. early on. I guess if you don't have a clear direction on who you're servicing, more of an, uh, you know what your product is, but who do you want to help and how do you want to help them? And, and like you, I think this is one of the real challenges with the software company, I know I felt it, is that you have in your head this idea of what it, is supposed to do, right? And you must have felt that way for a long time, given how how many stages you went through. You must be thinking, oh, why can't we just have an upload button to upload this content rather than them sending us a Dropbox file, right? Yep. But you have to go through that staged development process unless you, I guess, get some crazy amount of venture funding and, and hire 10 developers out the gate, which is not usually likely, right? So that's the real challenge, I think, for any software company to get that part right. And I think even if you feel like you had those false positives, it sounds like you did have a fairly effective staggered growth mechanism moving from almost like a consultant service company to a full-blown software company and and just rebalancing that over time. And that that's not necessarily a bad way to grow a software company, I, I would say, suggest even today, right? Yeah, definitely. And and even the building feature, you know, even if we if we had funding right out of the gate, which is pretty tough to get funding just based on an idea and you don't even have your model in place, but it can happen. And we did get funding later, but even after having significant revenues and even today where we have lots of software developers, we still do some of these things where you do things in more of a manual way until you realize that it's actually or more of an MVP way, like a minimum valuable product. And so with that upload thing, it was we probably could have spent a couple of weeks just building it right out of the gate, but it was more efficient for us to validate that people really did want us to upload the videos mm-hmm. and this model was going to work and then they were going to get back to us and give us their credit card before we went and built it. Because that, if we'd just gone out of the gate even with 10 devs and started building that stuff, it would have still delayed things by you know a few more weeks just for that feature and a few more weeks for the next feature. But by doing it for them, it let us create a whole course site for them in a matter of a day rather than saying, okay, we're going to go build all those features. We'll be back to you in two months. Right. No, that's a really great point. You MVP each feature. That's manually do it first and then prove that you need to develop it. Like That's very smart. A couple of things you mentioned, your hiring process early on and, and even today. I'm kind of curious as you grow a company now, which is you know well and truly becoming a, a big company now in Vancouver here, do you, especially early on, are you, you know, acquiring or acquiring, attracting people as uh, promoting yourself as a, you know, like a young tech startup who's offering maybe, you know, a little bit of shares in the company for the early hires? How did you think about that part of the, the growth of your company? And even today, how do you think about it? Earlier, the first sort of, I think the first sort of 20, 25, 30 people, it was very sort of non-scalable growth hacky. We'd hop on LinkedIn and AngelList and go to, you know, meetups and post jobs on Craigslist and, and meet people that way. Crossing that threshold of about 30 people, uh, we actually had Tia and then Amanda and Miranda actually, co-founder of mine, took on a lot of this responsibility of doing the heavy lifting of hiring and they got us up to getting thousands of applicants every month. They were doing 
a lot of promotion and going out there. And then we implemented actually top grading as a hiring process. So there's a good book called Who by GH Smart that walks you through this. And then you can actually take courses on it to get better at it, which we all did. And that was a real turning point in terms of our ability to hire amazing people, both in terms of identifying people through a hiring process where my gut told me it was probably going to be a good idea, but the hiring process said run the other direction and then vice versa where your gut's telling you it's a bad idea or you're not really, or the person isn't very good at selling themselves in the interview process, but by digging in using this methodology, we can actually identify some of the sort of, I guess, diamonds in the rough and it's really skyrocketed our uh, kind of retention and employee engagement and overall quality of hiring process. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, in the first sort of 30 people, how do you decide who to hire first? Like, is it a case, oh, we need programmers now, oh, we need customer service now? Like, how do you, is it just reactionary or is there is there more of a plan to it? I'd say it was pretty pretty reactionary, very much like, what is the single biggest limiting factor in the company right now? And then can we even afford to fix that problem? So early days, it was, you know, I had the the business side, my brother had the, the back end code side, but we were always limited by front end development. So those were some of, that was some, uh, you know, early hire. Then it was, we need to do better on the marketing and digital marketing side, as opposed to just Greg doing this non-scalable hop on the phone and email stuff. And then of course, more on the software development side pretty early, but it was very much a needs driven What's the single limiting factor in the company? And to be honest, to some extent, I mean, we do, we obviously plan a lot more now and solve for some of the problems six months or a year out by hiring now. But even in looking at the hiring plan now, part of it is what's the single biggest limiting factor in this area of our company that'll help us determine what we need to hire for. Right. Theory of constraints still in action, huh? Yeah. What do you find in terms of incentives? I mean, and maybe it's changed. Did you offer like some sort of ownership of the company? Do you still like, how, or are people motivated by something else? What do you think is the best driver to get quality people today? We do stock options. We pay pretty well. We uh, have a lot of wonderful, fun benefit and uh, super cool culture. But I would say the biggest things that, and those things all kind of help. A lot of the studies on stock-based compensation is that it's sort of nice to get and people appreciate it when they get it, but it doesn't actually drive long-term behavior or drive a lot of motivation unless you do a really good job of talking about it and properly explaining it. And I think it works better in publicly traded companies when everything is going in the right direction. But what has actually worked really well for us is two things. is an amazing company culture. And then I think our vision and our message and what we're getting to do and the feedback we get from our customers is super impactful for everybody who works here. And we we're all kind of behind the idea that we can make a real difference in our clients' lives and in their students' lives. So that's a big piece. And then the culture side, we just have a super fun time as a company and people quite enjoy working here. And we, we run internal employee NPS surveys constantly just to make sure. And uh, and then we have you know anonymous submissions of what's good and what's bad. And then we go out and fix things. Mm. Very cool. Now, you mentioned before venture funding. At what point did you decide that was something you wanted to you know, bring on board? Because you said you only had the, the family support with the very early days. Did you have to get some other funding? Like, How did the growth occur? Yeah, I think the, the nice thing for us was we never really had to and, and haven't had to. We um, were approached by some founders of other companies who had either were, were doing really well or had sold their company. And so they were interested in coming on board and, and just in developing a relationship over time saw that they were able to add amazing value either through introductions or business advice or guidance and you know even just helping us through difficult decisions. 
And so that was really the the reason for us to bring on some investors. I and mean, obviously the cash is, is helpful and nice, but we're lucky in that once we hit revenue, it's been growing so quickly that uh, it's really helped facilitate everything that we want to do. Nice. So it's more like uh, people coming on board that are not just for finance reasons, but for actually technical advice, support, mentoring, that sort of thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's guys like, I mean, Fraser and Dan from uh, Recon who started uh, VFF or uh, what was Vancouver Founders Fund is now VFF and uh, and Jay there as well. And then um, a few other founders in Vancouver like Ryan from Hootsuite and Jeff from Build Direct have been uh, amazing and super helpful at, uh, at helping us grow the company. Mm-hmm. Speaking of growth, with a company like yours where it sort of transitioned into a a full-blown do-it-yourself platform, you must have changed your marketing a little bit to represent that too. You you would have had to kind of change your pricing point, your customer avatar. Sounds like maybe eventually settled on what you described earlier, that sort of teaching specialist person. But how did you kind of, especially because you were the sales guy, how did that change the way you, you grew the company in terms of just finding new customers? Yeah, we so early days when we were doing a lot of work for people, even shooting videos and marketing and sometimes just getting on the phone and selling their courses for them, we, we took a big cut of the course. But what we saw, and, and that cut slowly reduced over time as we did less for them and made it a bit more self-serve. But then what we eventually saw is that when you're taking a cut of someone's revenue, it attracts people either who fully expect you to do all the sales for them or they're, they don't have a big vision for where they want to go. And this doesn't apply to everyone or early customers, but just I think the general message it puts out there is you know, come here if you don't think you're going to actually be that big or you just want to kind of park your stuff here. I actually had a, call, a few calls with customers saying like, so you just take a cut of my revenue. So if I never make any money, I can just park all my stuff on your site for free forever. And I said, yeah. And they said, oh, that's great. And I'm like, I don't think this is going to be a good relationship here where you're going <laughs> to park all your stuff. We're going to pay for all your video hosting and bandwidth and all this stuff and, and you know, support it. But you're never actually intending on doing anything with this business or this course. It's free cloud storage, basically. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. So, so we actually moved to more of a. There's a freemium model. You can start for free, and then we have a monthly fee, and that really was a big turning point for us in offering that. And we actually saw a noticeable spike and and change in the slope of our revenue curve. And I think it's because it actually suited our our deal clients a lot better that way. So I forgot, I haven't brought in the, your wife in this. I was kind of curious. She was there from the beginning of Thinkific, right? Uh, not the very beginning, but but fairly early days. Yeah, okay. she remembers me coming home pretty frustrated sometimes in the early days <laughs> and happy, you know, wins and losses right. and all of that. Yeah. You didn't meet her at work, did you? No, I met her online, eHarmony, actually. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so how did she, I mean, obviously she's the one. That I was had. before Tinder. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, a different different platform. But how did she react? I guess because you said like during the early days, you were this entrepreneur who had not enough money to go to Whistler for a weekend because you were too busy working and putting, I guess, all the money back into the company. How did she kind of play a part in the growth of, I guess, you as an entrepreneur? And how did the relationship, because I think it's something that can have an impact on a relationship quite significantly because entrepreneurs are like almost married to their companies, right? So how did that interact with with your eventual marriage, I guess? 
Yeah, she's been super supportive the whole way along. So she's she's um, it's interesting because I think some of the relationship I had shortly before that ended pretty quickly when they found out I, I didn't I didn't have a lot of cash on hand. <laughs> but she was not at all like that. She was super supportive throughout the whole journey and always has been and still is to this day. We especially now with two kids at home. So she's she actually works at one of the top four accounting firms. Well, she'll have me say the top one, KPMG. <laughs> but um, she's taken a one year mat leave with the two kids at home and is super supportive by taking care of them so that I can get more done at work. But yeah, she's just been awesome the whole way through in, in supporting me and all of that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the either the personal cash flow or even the amount that I work was too much of an issue. I think the fact too that, you know, being a, a CPA and, and working for a big firm, she totally understands hard work and long hours and that stuff. So even after her first kid came along, we would put our daughter to bed and then both of us would pull out our laptops and put a few more hours of work in before we go to bed. And, you know, I don't know that doesn't sound like the most romantic evening, but we do have our, uh, our. I think it's important. You also have your couple time and that stuff built in and your trips together or, mm-hmm. or time together. Yeah, a couple time in, on the laptops in bed. It's, it's very romantic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Never been like an opportunity or even a desire to potentially have her work uh, with you in Thinkific, given there seems to be like an overlap in her interest as well. She did help with our uh, like financial statements a few times. And I think through that process, uh, after doing it for the second year, she said, I would never work for you. <laughs> so we have a, an amazing relationship and it's really healthy. But I think we both realized we didn't want to work together. So actually, it's a good friend of hers now who was at KPMG before, who's now our director of finance. So she gets along great with the person who now does our financial statement, Zeus. But yeah, I think we realized in our small amount of working together that we're better off being married and not also right. working together. It is interesting. Some couples I've met who are 100%, they have a company together, they spend all their time together, they raise their kids together. And then there's some other couples who are like, no, we don't work together. And that's good because that gives us the time apart. You know, we have our own things we focus on and we don't want to be 100% in our entire lives together. So it's, it's funny how that can work either direction and seems to be fine for the sake of a marriage. Greg, let's just move towards the end of the interview here. With with Thinkific obviously still on this incredible growth curve, what do you now personally want the company to become and, and where do you see it going? Like, is this something... I know you're probably not thinking about exiting at, at this point or anything like that, but obviously at the bigger it gets, there'll be more things like, do you want to float the company? I mean, we've seen Shopify do that. And I think is Hootsuite floated here as well? I'm not sure. You know, obviously, that's an option. Uh, you know, what are your personal goals for it? I did. I really have two big ones. Is I we love. I love personally helping other people, especially in in kind of business and education pursuits. So those are the two big goals I have associated with it. Is is the more we can help someone out there who has a passion or an expertise and they want to go out and share it with the world or or make a difference in more people's lives, and then helping them to build a business around that and helping or to grow their business further around that and then to go out and actually make a bigger difference. So the two pieces there is the business growth and actually achieving transformation in students' lives and and education in students' lives to make a difference. And I really see, I think education is the strongest force on the planet for affecting global change and world change and personal change. And that's really how I think you affect massive changes is having lots of individual personal transformation and change. So we want to empower our clients to go and make that happen. And then on the client side, by growing their business, if there's a a sustainable business behind your 
education and and sharing of knowledge and teaching others and sharing your passion, then it becomes something that can scale and it can reach more people and it can be sustainable and go on for a long time. So to me, the big goal right now is the more we can do of that, the better. And so when someone reaches out to us, the first thing they see is that we're totally dedicated to helping them in achieve their success in their business and in educating others. And that probably actually, I mean, it ties right to a lot of our core values and things we do here. And we'll spend money even if it doesn't mean more profit for us on achieving these things. So for example, we spend a lot more on customer support than I think any other company in our space does because we want to make sure all our clients are super well supported. So it's really about driving to those two goals of creating real businesses that can actually go out and make change and transformation in other people's Mm -hmm. lives and doing as much of that as possible. Okay, so basically focus on the core business and whatever happens from that point forward, you'll, you know, see what happens kind of thing. Like in terms of future growth, it's just a case of just doing the best you can for your customers right now. Yeah, and I mean, I wouldn't put IPO off the table at some point potentially or just continuing to grow, but uh, I think those are still far enough away. I mean, we're probably big enough now we could even consider an IPO, but I've done them as a lawyer for clients before and not really at that stage where we'd want to look at something like that. Fair enough. One last question for the listener who is loving your story, in particular the Thinkific story, and and they might have an idea for uh, some kind of software platform or any kind of platform, I guess. What would you advise them to do right now to get started in terms of you've certainly got the hindsight experience, in particular with questions, I think, around funding, because software seems to be something that people feel they really do need to get funding and potentially a lot of it, especially if they don't have a brother who's a developer on <laughs> hand, you know, to, to make the first version of your platform. Like what would you advise to them? Oh geez, on the funding start. So I think I think we were misled a lot in the early days of Thinkific that you could just put a pitch deck together, go to an event, throw up an idea, and someone would cut you a big check to go build your software company. I think barring the weird exception, uh, and the weird exception being, you know, you used to work at a company where you had prior successes and you have investors who are just willing to bet on your prior track record, uh, which has to be pretty, I think, extreme. Or, you know, other extreme examples. For the most part, I don't think that happens a lot just based on an idea and a pitch deck. So I, what I would say is figure out a way to do the non-scalable things, to start the building of that company, to get those first customers maybe on a more of a service basis initially, or find that co-founder. You know, They have a lot of services and meetups and events and things to go find that technical co-founder. It doesn't have to be your brother. In some respects, that's maybe not the best idea. <laughs> <laughs> but go and find that technical co-founder. And then I would say just get building. I mean, with the tools that are out there now, you can build basic level SaaS software pretty damn quickly and then go out and get some of those first customers and get value out of that. And I'd say, you know, getting started with that, I think you're way better investing early efforts in building a marketing channel, getting content out there and starting building a base of customers, learning from those customers, starting to build that early product from them and maybe doing some non-scalable even service or custom work for them than you are worrying about pitching investors. I think the only time the investment really worked for us was when we didn't need it. And then the investors just came to us and said, hey, we're interested. So you still have to put yourself out there when you get to that point so that they can even see that you exist and be interested. But early days, I wouldn't be worrying so much about investment. I'd be just getting something built, getting some revenue going, getting some customers going, figuring out ways to prove out that you have some kind of idea market fit. I should ask you also a very obvious question. (laughs) This will be the true last one. For those people out there who might be thinking about creating an online course, how do you recommend they get started? 
<laughs> and you know what? It can be the same people. I, online courses can be a really good way of actually marketing and building a software company. I mean, Hootsuite uses us, Later.com uses us, Wishpond uses us, lots of software companies into it. Uh, I think even Samsung does. So uh, you can actually use courses now as a great marketing and sales tool and customer education tool. So even in building some of those early customers, so that can be some of that early content you create to help bring in some early customers. But yeah, for anyone who's interested in creating their own online courses, check out Thinkific and uh, we're there to help you get started. You can start out for free and then we've got actually training on Thinkific to show you how to use Thinkific and launch your own courses. And then our support team is there to help you out all the time. And you just, like, literally, if I had nothing right now but I wanted to get started with online course, would you be saying to me, go create your first video and then upload it to Thinkific? Is that sort of your suggestion? I'd even say go sign up for Thinkific and then we'll give you a course showing you how to make your first video. So okay. even even just out of the gate, I mean, if you're... I'd say the only place where it's a bit more challenging right out of the gate is if you have no idea what you want to teach. You know, you don't have a particular passion you want to share. You don't have an area of expertise. That's where it becomes a bit more challenging. But if, as long as you've got that passion or that expertise that you think you can share with people... And even if you don't, there, we have ways of helping you. We have a, actually a, a course on kind of how to pick your course topic. So I would say sign up, check it out, play around with it, and then we can help you get started. Awesome. Greg, any last words? Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah. let's. Uh, I'll obviously put the show notes. We'll put the links in here. But just let's spell out Thinkific, just, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> just think, think if I could, except take off the all everything but the first letter of think if I could. So it's think, I-F-I-C. Dot com. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Greg, for taking the time to share some of the background story. Interesting, the, the lawyer turned software entrepreneur and prior to that, Marvel entrepreneur. Fantastic. Or maybe candy entrepreneur. I'm not sure which I should <laughs> categorize put you in, but I appreciate you spending the time with me to share that story. And I think everyone will have got a lot out of that. So thank you and good luck with Thinkific. I know I, I look forward to seeing more of those Thinkific hoodies all around Vancouver and the world. So keep up the good work. Awesome. Thanks, Yaro. Hey, this is Yarrow. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Entrepreneur's Journey podcast. Now, if you're interested in following in my footsteps and becoming a podcaster, and in particular, you're focusing on conducting interviews with interesting and smart people, then I have the perfect program for you. It's called Power Podcasting, and it's a short course I put together to essentially teach you how to conduct effective storytelling interviews and get all the amazing details out of your guests so you can create very powerful podcasts just like the one you listen to. It doesn't really matter what topic you're covering or what type of guest you're inviting onto your show. My Power Podcasting course will teach you how to conduct the interview, what kind of questions to ask, and also how to use that podcast to ultimately grow your business, which means getting new followers, building an audience, and even using it to sell your products and services and also to create audio products. So you could in fact sell your podcast, make money directly from audio content you create. To learn how to do this, you can sign up for my short course at power-podcasting.com. That's power-podcasting.com. And I can't wait to see you inside that program. Here's a sneak peek for the next episode. 
I always really wanted to create something that kind of lived beyond me, that was bigger than me. And I can look at it now and I can say that I really did look to build a business where I could exit the business. That was always a plan. And whilst we ran for 12 years, which was, you know, a long time before we exited, it was always there. I was always thinking, right, if I'm ever going to actually sell this business, then I can't have my name above the door. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur's Journey podcast, the original entrepreneur interview podcast established in 2005. For more episodes, head over to ejpodcast.com. See you next time.